morning. My name is Jesse Hill, and uh, my wife and kids and I have been attending Maranatha for, I think, about six years. And so I know there's a number of you that I have not met. Um, most of you I have. But uh, if you don't know me, you probably know my wife, and you've probably tripped over my kids if you haven't met either one of us. So it's very good to be with you this morning and um, very much looking forward to our time together. I will tell you that um, preaching is not something I am accustomed to. Uh, I am a fireman by trade, a so-called essential worker. Um, and I can tell you that uh, during the preparation for this, for this morning and, and given the opportunity to study God's Word, I can attest to you that there is no more essential work than what takes place from uh, right up here every Sunday morning. And uh, so I have a tremendous amount of admiration for our pastors and the work that they do week after week uh, preaching for us. And on a more personal level, I would say that being the son of a pastor, digging into the Word of God this week and in the last couple of weeks has given me an even greater admiration for his 40 years of ministry, uh, laboring week after week. Our text uh, this week and my assignment is First uh, Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4. So you can be turning there. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1016. Uh, we're going to put it on the screen as well, and uh, we'll just read that together and then um, get ready to dig into what God has for us today. So I'll read, uh, and you can follow along. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you this morning with grateful hearts, grateful for the fact that you are our good shepherd. And we thank you for the privilege of being called a member of your flock. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to sit under the teaching of the Word of God today. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would move during this time, that you would guide and direct our thoughts, convict us where needed. And Lord, if there is one present here today that cannot testify to the fact that they are a part of that flock, that you would also stir their heart to draw them to yourself. We thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it would be helpful for us to do a very brief look back at the last few verses that we have covered. And we're kind of guided to do that uh, by the beginning of our text today. So you'll notice in verse 1, the very first word is so. And as pastor has made it very clear for us over the study of First Peter, that when we see these connect words, it's important for us to reflect back upon what we have heard and what we've uh, already understood so that we can more fully appreciate what we're about to hear. 
And so we need to recognize that the things that we're about to hear uh, from Peter to the leaders of the church have to be understood in the context of what Peter has just delivered. And we heard from Tom last week uh, the specifics of the suffering that Peter was saying was going to come. We heard about the fiery trial that was talked about. Uh, we, I think Tom mentioned last week, but we know that in this particular time period when First Peter was written, Nero was the emperor of Rome. And we know how cruel he was to the Christians. We know that he liked to use their bodies dipped in tar to light his courtyard. We also know that Peter is writing to the five provinces of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And we know that during this time period, and certainly in the near future after this writing, that those churches would experience persecution. There may well have been some localized persecution going on at this point. But history tells us, and, and archaeologists have uncovered letters that show that just about 50 years after this writing, the governor of Bithynia, one of the churches that's addressed here, would write to the emperor telling him, I'm executing the Christians that are in my, my territory. And the emperor would reply to him and approve of what he was doing, but also tell them, if they will recant and renounce their faith in Jesus and worship the Roman gods, let them go, set them free. So we can understand that the weighty matter that has been discussed, and you can almost feel Peter's heart as he's uh, telling the people of the challenges that are to come, or at least acknowledging the ones that they may have already been experiencing, that it would have been very natural and easy for him to understand the leadership of the church has got to be ready for this. And so he's going to spend the passage that we're going to look at today talking to them and helping them to understand their role in what God has for the church. Maybe Peter was also reflecting back to Ezekiel. And as he's already mentioned, judgment will begin in the house of God. Maybe he's thinking about the, pro the prophecy there and how the idolatry had just begun to run rampant throughout the city of Jerusalem and the executioners were, were called up and, and the one in white linen was sent throughout the city to put a mark on all of the ones that still actually mourned over the sin of the people. And then when the command was given to strike, Ezekiel 9, verse 6 tells us, Kill the old men outright. Kill young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Maybe, maybe Peter had it on his heart that if persecution is coming, and if the judgment of God is coming to the body, I need to make sure the elders are ready. I need to make sure the shepherds and the leaders are ready because they're going to be the first ones to come under the judgment of God. So it's very clear then, if the church is going to survive, the leaders need to operate the way that God calls them to. And so that's really what this word so does for us. It paints the picture of why it's so essential that we understand the leadership of the church and the way that the leadership is supposed to operate. 
for us here today, it's actually uh, somewhat timely as well because we're, we've been in the process the last month or so of nominating leaders for our own church body. And while some of the particulars of assignments and tasks and roles overlap, there's still the underlying theme of spiritual leadership over the body. And so as we even consider here for our own assembly, uh, who is going to lead us? Those who are nominated consider whether they are ready for that challenge. Our text today comes to be of great help. So we're gonna look at four things today, four Ps. I know Pastor's a huge fan of alliterations, and so when I found out he was gonna be here today, I figured I should probably use them so that everybody was kind of on the same page and comfortable. The first thing we're gonna look at today is the shepherd's position. We're gonna see this right in the beginning of, of verse one. Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you. So now we know who he's going to be giving exhortation to, but it's important for us to recognize that Peter is not excluding the congregation from this congregation or from this conversation. In fact, he is still talking to them. He says, I exhort the elders among you. He's not pulling the elders aside into some secret room and giving them some tips and tricks on how to lead the church. He's laying it all out for everyone to see. And I think there's a couple of reasons that he does this. Certainly one of them is so that there is an understanding among the entire body that uh, what the elders are tasked with doing. Secondly, I think it may be that uh, he wants the elders to know that the people know what they're supposed to be doing. I, I kind of have used this methodology a little bit in, in our family when our oldest girls became uh, old enough to babysit. I, I got all the kids together and I said, okay, now listen, mom and I are going out on a date and here is the assignment for the night for you babysitters. And then I turned to the little ones and I said, and I want you to tell me if they don't do what the assignment was. So everybody's on the same page. Everybody knows exactly what is expected. And I think maybe that's exactly what Peter is doing here. And he also wants the people to understand that Elders who are functioning and leadership that is functioning the way that God calls it to is an advantage to the people. It, Hebrews 13, 17 reminds us to obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So he wants the people to understand that leadership is to their advantage shepherding and spiritual oversight is to their advantage. The fact that he's talking about elders among you also helps us to understand that uh, in this particular time and really throughout church history, it's been customary for much of the spiritual leadership to come from lay elders and, and lay shepherds who are just members of the church along with everyone else. Peter uses some interesting, or to me it's interesting, uh, terminology and approach here as he talks to the elders. He says, I exhort the elders. What's interesting to me about that is, is the word exhort is, doesn't really carry with it necessarily the idea of a command or an imperative, but it's more of a calling, it's an invitation, it's, it's an attempt to encourage, to motivate someone in a particular direction. 
The actual word here in the original language is the same word from which we get the Holy Spirit. In, in uh, John 14, Jesus uses the exact same word to describe the helper that's going to come. And so Peter is really trying to implore uh, the elders to, to come along on this mission that he's about to lay out for them. He really could have used his standing as an apostle. He, he could have relied upon that and used more of an authoritarian approach. But, but he actually takes the approach that he is about to call the elders to use. Uh, he, he doesn't domineer. He doesn't overpower. He tries to lead them and displays a gentle, loving spirit to them. So I think the next thing we need to do then is look about uh, understanding who these elders are and what, and what this is all about. The word elder is used throughout Scripture almost from cover to cover, and really there's almost no explanation for the word because it's just so natural. All the way back in Leviticus and even before that, we see the use of the word elder used to describe men in various roles. In Leviticus, it talks about the elders in the congregation. If you remember the, Ruth, the story of uh, Ruth and Boaz, Boaz went to the elders who sat in the gate. They were just the elders of, of, in society. Uh, in Psalm, we have uh, elders in the worship assembly. And then in Proverbs, <clears throat> once again, the virtuous woman's husband is described as sitting in the gate with the elders. And then even into the New Testament, we see a continuation of the use of elders in Jewish culture in Matthew 15 and in the synagogue with, listed with the scribes in Matthew 16 and in Acts chapter 4 verse 5 as well. But then there's about 16 times or so throughout the New Testament where this word is used specifically talking about the early church. And there really isn't an explanation given or no, no talk about how they decided on that at all. It just flowed seamlessly from the culture that they were already in, from the synagogues that they'd already been a part of, and was just adopted right over into the church. It was apparently a completely natural understanding for them to the point that even in this writing where Peter is writing to churches all spread about an entire region, he doesn't make any differentiation at all. It's just assumed that they're all operating with this terminology. The word in the original language really just means old man. Uh, there's nothing particularly special about that. It's just an, an aged older man. Certainly in culture, uh, it would be easy to recognize that an older, more experienced person would be able to handle uh, challenges and maybe have more understanding given their experience. In the church, then, it kind of does transition, though. It doesn't talk so much about specific age, but more an emphasis of a man's spiritual maturity and his ability to do the job. Today, it's commonly used in Protestant churches as the official title of the church leaders. We could list off a number of, of passages, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on all of these today, but if you want to jot some down just for your own study, Acts 11.30, uh, the word, uh, the elders are described as receiving an offering that was sent to the church. In Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. And in Acts 20, verse 17, Paul called all the elders of the church in Ephesus to come and meet with him. And in Titus, Paul left Titus 
for the specific purpose of appointing elders in every town. But I think maybe one of the most useful opportunities for us to understand the way the elders work is in uh, Acts chapter 15, where we have the Jerusalem council. And if you think back to this story and, and remember that uh, Paul and Barnabas had been out on the mission field and they'd encountered this issue with circumcision and Gentiles coming into the faith and not really knowing exactly how to deal with this. And so they took the matter back to Jerusalem where they could meet with all of the elders. And the story is laid out there. It's very neat to see how they debated this matter and discussed it and talked about it. And eventually, uh, after the different sides and perspectives were heard, Peter stood up and he offered his opinion on the matter. And as every group of elders would ever hope to do, Peter cuts right to the heart of the matter and lays things out and how it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then James stands up a minute later and he says, listen to me. And he gives his opinion on how that message should then be delivered to the various churches. So we have this group of men that's all working together to come to the best solution for the children of God. The word is used interchangeably with the word overseer throughout the New Testament. If you have the King James Version, you might see the, bishop, the word bishop used in some of these uh, situations. And if you want to know why bishop's in there, you can come ask me later. But when the word overseer is used, it's generally when the emphasis is being placed upon the general responsibilities of the job. And we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the qualifications for overseers are laid out. It's the same job, it's the same position, just a different term because a different emphasis is being made. Additionally, we see the word elder used interchangeably with the word shepherd or pastor. When that word is used, typically the emphasis is being placed upon the primary duty of the position for the feeding and teaching of the flock. One thing that is very unique and, and we should pay attention to is the fact that the word is never used in the singular when referring to the leadership of the church. It's always in the plural. In fact, there are three times where the word elder does appear in the, in the New Testament, one of which is when we are instructed not to hear the charge made against an individual elder, unless there are multiple witnesses. The only other two times are when John refers to himself as the elder. Every other time in, in the New Testament when we see the leadership of the church talked about or when the word elder is used, it's in the plural. I think that needs to make us ask the question, why? Why is the word always in the plural? And I think there are several things that we can find from Scripture that are very obvious, and then I think we can make some general conclusions as well. One of the first things that I would point out is that there are various giftings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And if you'd like, you could jot down Romans chapter 12, 6 through 8, or 1 Peter 4, 10. Both of these passages 
say essentially the same thing as what we just said, that God grants each one of us different strengths and weaknesses, and his design is for us to work together in harmony with one another so that my weaknesses can be covered by your strength and vice versa. So then it would make sense that we would want to have a plurality of elders leading because where one is strong, another is weak. A church with one leader is susceptible to becoming out of balance as that leader's personal strengths and giftings dominate and snuff out all the other areas of ministry that would be addressed by those with other giftings. And we see that even in our church, right? Pastor David and Pastor Andrew and others have various strengths and weaknesses and they complement each other and that was intentional. Another reason to have a plurality of elders is insulation from error. This is a particularly alarming thing for us to consider because Paul gives very specific direction to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. So the caution is very clear that even within the church and even with the established elders of the church, the potential for one to become twisted in their thinking is there. And it's incumbent upon the others to correct him and bring him back into line. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 and 32, where Paul is talking about the way that the worship service should happen, that an emphasis is placed upon checking the teaching there as well. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. And of course, we're familiar with Proverbs that tells us that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So we are insulated from error by a plurality of elders. And then the third way that the plurality of elders comes to bear is in the sharing of the workload. If you think back to Exodus, when Moses was trying to deal with all of the challenges that the people were bringing to him, and he would sit out in front of the tent, and they would line up, and his father-in-law watched this and said, what you're doing is not good. You all are going to wear yourselves out this way. And he provided some wisdom and instruction on helping him to bring some others alongside and then disperse the workload out to where it could be managed well. And then a a fourth way that a plurality of elders uh, comes to to help us is in continuity of ministry. Certainly you may be aware of or have even been a part of a church in the past where a longstanding pastor leaves and no one is there to fill the void and the church falls into somewhat of a uh, chaotic situation for a brief time. One commentator wrote this, when a man who has been the sole or dominant leader in a church leaves without ever developing fellow elders, there is no one able to replace him, resulting in a major disruption of ministry for that church. In the shepherdless vacuum, committees of sheep struggle to find a shepherd from among those who have no flock or would like a different one. The results are often disappointing and even divisive. So God designed the church to be shepherded by a a plurality of elders. So now we understand that Peter is addressing elders, and they're the ones that are responsible for the church. The next thing we need to look at is exactly what are these elders supposed to do? 
And we find that in verse 2. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. This is the shepherd's priority. The shepherd's priority and the priority of the church leadership is to shepherd, tend to, feed the flock of God. Now, I think this may be lost on us a little bit. I asked the first service if anyone uh, had been a part of raising sheep. And so has anyone lived on a sheep farm or raised sheep for 4-H or anything else? Okay, one, I think, out of our entire church, which is probably fairly consistent with what I found because really there's five million sheep in the United States, okay, which might seem like a lot, but that's half of 1% of all the sheep in the world. You know, if you go to Scotland, there's more sheep than people. So for us to understand uh, what this whole idea of shepherding is about, I think it would be helpful for us to understand something about sheep. If, the, if there is a shepherd, then clearly there are sheep. Here are some things I found after I got done watching videos about feigning goats. <clears throat> it happened. Sheep have no innate sense of direction. They have no idea where they are. And if they're removed even a small distance from their pasture or from their fold, they have no idea how to get back. The shepherd has to go and find them and guide them and lead them back to the flock. Sheep have absolutely no defense mechanism. They can't kick, they, they don't growl, they, they can't bite. I mean, have you ever heard of a sheep fight? <laughs> They're essentially helpless. When they are threatened, they just huddle together or line up so that the attacker can just take his pick of whichever one they want. Sheep are, are very easily discouraged. In fact, as the sheep's wool grows and becomes heavier, it's easy for a sheep to tip over. And once the sheep does tip over, it can't right itself. It'll just lay there on its back. And oftentimes they just become discouraged and die. And it's the responsibility of the shepherd to go and help the sheep back to its feet and help it along until it's ready to rejoin the flock. Sometimes the shepherd even has to carry the sheep until the circulation returns in its legs. Sheep can't clean themselves. They, you know, sheep, uh, they make lanolin, comes out of their skin and gets in their fur, or their, their, their wool, I should say, and, and then everything sticks to it. The dust and the dirt and the, the pollen and everything, everything in their environment sticks to it, and it becomes matted and it becomes a hazard to the sheep's health. And if the shepherd doesn't shave the sheep, it cannot survive. The sheep has no ability to lick itself like other animals do and clean itself. Maybe most alarming, sheep are indiscriminate eaters. They, they don't know the difference between nutritious plants and poisonous ones. And the shepherd has to guide the sheep from pasture to pasture to keep it in the good grass. The shepherd knows which grasses have the nutrients that the sheep needs. And so it will put it in this pasture for a while so it can get these nutrients and then put it in that pasture for a while and so on and so on. And the shepherd has to guide the sheep throughout because the sheep doesn't know. If they're left to their own devices, they'll just keep doing the same thing they've always done until the earth is bare, at which point they will start eating the dirt. 
Older sheep will sometimes uh, be required, they, they require more encouragement and more urging to move from the things that they're familiar with into newer areas to graze. And the younger sheep are often wandering off into trouble and have to be pursued and rescued by the shepherd. It really kind of makes you wonder if God didn't create the sheep just as a spiritual object lesson for us. (laughs) I know I identified with more than one of those items as I was going through them. But it's not all bad news because sheep are among the most useful of all the creatures on earth. And we don't need to go into the gory details, but there's almost no part of a sheep's body that is not useful. So with that as a background, Maybe Jesus' words in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Maybe that brings a little more understanding for us. And given the fact that this flock that Peter's writing to is about to go through some really difficult times, you can understand why Peter wanted to make sure the shepherds knew what they needed to do. And so he tells them, shepherd the sheep, shepherd the flock. The idea is feed the sheep. I think it's very easy to understand why Peter is communicating this. If you think back on Peter's life, uh, he was kind of a misfit from the beginning. He was always getting it wrong while he was a disciple for Jesus. He was rebuking the parents who were trying to bring their children to Jesus. He was uh, cutting Malchus' ear off in the garden. He was just always wrong. He was firing off at the mouth, not quite on the same page. And Peter must have carried with him the guilt and anguish of not being able to sit up with his Savior and and just a stone's throw from where Jesus was pouring out his heart in anguish, Peter fell asleep. And then later that same night, Peter felt the pain of the gaze of Jesus as he denied him three times. But then Peter also experienced the joy of having Jesus come to him on the beach and say, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And giving him a chance to restore himself to the Savior and then was given three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So Peter knows what is needed. He also remembers that the judgment is going to begin with the shepherds. And so for their sakes, he wants them to be doing the job that they are assigned to do. So the primary responsibility of the shepherds is to feed the sheep. They're able to do this by exercising oversight. That's the next phrase that we see there. The image of the shepherd in an elevated position above his flock, maybe up on a rocky crevasse or something, where he could see out over all of them and understand the dangers that were coming at them, understand the ones that's tipped over and needs help up. He can see the one that's wandering off. That the shepherd needs to be looking over the entire flock to see what the challenges are and looking out ahead to see what's coming so that he can be guiding them in the right direction. This teaching is consistent all the way back to Proverbs where in Proverbs 27:33 it says, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. After all, as is mentioned here, It's the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. And so Peter is reminding them that 
The flock doesn't belong to you. It's Jesus' flock, and it's your responsibility to feed them. In Acts 20, verses 28, it says, Pay attention to yourselves. We already talked about it. Because he obtained it with his own blood. So the shepherds are given very, very specific instruction. Feed the flock, exercising oversight. How are they supposed to do this? We find that in the next part of the verse. We see it says, Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering, but, ex- but being examples to the flock. This is the shepherd's parameters. This is how God wants and how Peter is giving instruction to the shepherds to operate. Just like so many other things that we do, it's not just what you do, and it's not how you do it, but it's why you do it. And so Peter presses right into the, the heart issue and the heart of the shepherds at this point. He starts off with not under compulsion, but willingly. It should be a free choice for the elders to lead. It should be a free choice for a person to pursue the office of elder. In 1 Timothy 3, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of elder, it's the word desire or reach out for. The one that is in this position needs to have a heart for it. It can't be under compulsion. If this flock of God is about to go through difficulty and the shepherd's heart is not in it, he will run away at the first sign of trouble or shirk his responsibility. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 10. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The shepherd must be driven by a heart's desire to care for, feed, and lead the sheep, not out of forced servitude. He cannot be indifferent about the task. He must be passionate about his duty. And then, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Once again, the elder's heart is being challenged here. What is your motivation for doing the job? This is not an instruction against the desire for gain. In fact, those elders whose job and whose profession is to be an elder should be paid for their work. It's right for them to expect compensation. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul takes this even a step farther in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So it's not wrong for occupational elders to be paid. It's a correct expectation on their part. But what is being guarded against here is a caution. It's a caution against greed and self-interest. This is always a temptation for those who are in a position of authority. It's a, it's a caution against stealing or acquiring it dishonestly. These sorts of heart attitudes and these sorts of behaviors are almost always consistent with false shepherds. 
These are the charlatans who masquerade as servants of God. They want you to send all your money and then your troubles will go away. Isaiah 56.11 reminds us of them. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. And Peter warns about this further in his second letter, 2 Peter 2, 1 and 3, where he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The heart of the shepherd cannot be motivated by personal gain. And then the third caution that we have here is not domineering, but being an example to the flock. Uh, in one of the lockers at the firehouse where I work, someone has a little sign up that says, the beatings will continue until morale improves. And that's kind of the idea here, where you just have a leader that's oppressive. They... they they discourage you in your moment of, of triumph. They cut you down. They stand in the way of your progress because they are consumed with having authority and consumed with having power. We know that this attitude is prevalent in our society and in our world. No doubt you have experienced people like this or worked for them. But it's also something that occurs in the church. In 3 John, we have an example of this taking place where John writes to the church in verse 9 and 10. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense about us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want, to, who want to and puts them out of the church. The leaders of the church cannot dominate and overpower. This Diotrephes wanted all the attention for himself. He wanted to exclude the influence of the elders and other churches and exclude the apostles so that he got all of the limelight. He got all of the attention. He cut his people off from being able to interact with other believers because it had to all be about him. But Peter says, you must be an example to the flock. He reminds them once again that they are in your charge. They're not your sheep to dominate. It's the Lord's flock. It's Jesus' flock. And then we come to verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I think there's a couple ways to look at this, but I think one of the ways that speaks to me the most and makes the most sense to me is that Peter just got done telling the shepherds all of the reasons they shouldn't be sheep or they shouldn't be shepherds. You're not going to get rich. You're not going to have it easy. You're not going to be able to have any prestige and authority. It's not about you. It's about everybody else. But in verse 4, he tells them what it's all about. 
The first thing he reminds them once again before he gets to that is that there is a chief shepherd. He, he instructs them to turn their eyes to Jesus. The song John picked this morning was perfect. He is the one who your attention needs to be on. He bought the flock. He paid for it. Remember, Peter saw this. He saw the cost. He saw the payment that Jesus made. He probably still felt it in his bones. He's the one that called the sheep. He already told us that a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 2, verse 25. We were straying like sheep and have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And then Jesus has placed his sheep under the care of under-shepherds. If Jesus is the chief shepherd, then every other shepherd is an under-shepherd. And if every shepherd has a shepherd, then also every shepherd is a sheep. And they need the shepherding of the chief shepherd. And if this shepherd, if the elders serve well, they are promised the crown of glory. I don't know what this crown looks like. In the Roman era, when this was written, obviously uh, an athletic conquest or a military victory or any other position of honor would be recognized with a laurel. It could be worn on the head. Obviously those were not going to last. They would fade and wither quickly. But at the return of Jesus, those who shepherd well will receive an honor that is fitting their work. And this honor will never fade. These guys are going to be in heaven for all eternity with an extra special honor. This is not uh, as some of the other uh, references to eternal honor uh, in, or a prize in Scripture. This is not something that's universal to everyone. There are certain things, the prize of eternity and the prize of life is universal for all believers. This seems to be a special honor. This is a special place for the shepherds who shepherd well. The encouragement is for shepherds to lift their gaze from temporal recognition and reward and rather look towards an eternal reward that cannot be taken away. So as we even consider our own flock here and as we consider our own body and the leaders that we have here, let us use these things as criteria for them and, and as the men who are, are asked to serve consider their own hearts, this is what a shepherd looks like. This is what caring for the flock of God looks like, and this is the expectation, but this is also the reward. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed humbled to be your sheep. And Lord, we recognize our tendencies. We recognize how easily we become lost. We recognize how we become disoriented and Sometimes we don't know what to eat. We get discouraged. We wander off and get into trouble. The dirt and challenges of the world stick to us and have to be cleaned off. Lord, we can identify with these things, and so it is with hearts of gratitude that we thank you for your shepherding of our hearts and for your placement of under-shepherds to care for your flock. Oh, Lord, we look forward to the day when we can turn our eyes upon Jesus and recognize the glory that he brings. 
And Lord, we thank you for the honor that you will bestow upon those that care for our hearts here on earth. We praise and thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had together. In Jesus' name, amen.